This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. It's very nice to be uh, once again in California, in San Diego, at a Carter meeting. In the course of the last uh, 8 million years, um, the hominins, the, the tribe of primates to which we belong, uh, displayed a uh, remarkable uh, diversity. And um, what you see on this uh, chart is that for almost any uh, period of the past, there was always several species of hominins existing on Earth, sometimes in the same regions, which is kind of puzzling for, for us because today there is only one species of hominins, I would say fortunately, and, um, and, and this species, Homo sapiens, uh, displayed a remarkable uh, evolutionary uh, success and an adaptive and reproductive success. It's present everywhere. It uh, expanded, um, replacing, displacing, or partially absorbing all other forms of hominins. And um, this situation, having a single species of hominin on Earth, it's in fact exceptional in many uh, respects and uh, prevailed only for the last, say, 40,000 years, which is nothing at the scale of geological times. And it's probably one of the most challenging um, uh, of the main challenges that, that uh, paleontology meets is to explain uh, why and how uh, this happened. Of course, we tend to um, think that technological progress, innovation played a major role, but it's, it's likely that also uh, social complexity and the ability that we have to create extended networks of individuals beyond local groups is essential also in this process. We have many reasons to uh, support the notion that our species originated in Africa. Uh, what genetics uh, says is that uh, the genetic diversity in Africa is much larger than elsewhere on Earth. And uh, the humans that we find outside of Africa seems to be a sort of subsample of uh, this African diversity. And of course, this matches this uh, notion of an out-of-Africa out expansion of our species. We also have fossils. And um, we have a group of fossils, mostly uh, just after 200,000 years, that has been found in sub-Saharan Africa, and more precisely in East Africa, uh, that are rather close to us anatomically. They are rather close, but they are not really exactly like us, and we, we used to call them early Homo sapiens or early, um, early modern humans. I, I found this term modern humans a bit problematic because when we say modern humans for these hominins, we mean cladistically modern. It means they belong to our lineage because they were not really anatomically modern uh, nor behaviorally modern. And, and that's a bit confusing, I think, for the future. And so with these discoveries emerged the notion that there was in the past somewhere, maybe in East Africa, a sort of restricted Garden of Eden where in a, a sort of biblical way, suddenly, around 200,000 years ago, uh, a fully human creature, like us, uh, emerged and then later expanded. And this view that prevailed for a long time has been challenged by many discoveries these uh, past few years. And I want to take you very far from East Africa, uh, in this landscape where you see in the back the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, uh, it's a place called Jebel Iroud. I think it's difficult to be further away from East Africa when you're still in Africa. Uh, it, it's very far from Kenya. And uh, we are somewhere between the town of Marrakesh and the Atlantic coast. And this place of Jebel Iroud is, is known by uh, paleoanthropologists and has been known for a long time because in the early 60s, uh, the exploitation of a, a barite mine uh, revealed an archaeological site, many bones, many lithics, and the workers of the mine found this skull and brought it to the, the medical doctor 
of the, the mine, uh, this medical doctor uh, sent me a letter in the 90s explaining the discovery. The site was passed on to a professor of paleontology at the University of Rabat. And, and this fossil, I would say, did not really match the picture we had of uh, evolution of hominins in Africa. And it was long considered a, a sort of African Neanderthal. And it was, it was seen this way because in the 60s, well, everything with a big brain and a big brow ridge was a Neanderthal. And so people would find Neanderthal anywhere. It's only later that Neanderthal were identified as a, a Western Eurasian uh, clade. I've been always interested in the Jebel Irud site. And uh, when I moved to the Max Planck Society in 2004, immediately I contacted my colleagues in Morocco. Uh, to resume works in the site. And initially, our, inten our intention was mostly to, uh, to date the site because uh, the, the, the exact age of this hominin uh, has been a, a mystery for, uh, for many years. And there were several attempts, but rather unsuccessful, to have a, an exact date. So we spent, I would say years, uh, cleaning the site and uh, exploring it. And we're lucky to find in a corner of this sort of quarry, because the site has been mostly destroyed by the mine and some other uh, excavations, uh, we found an in-situ sequence of about three meters of archaeological deposits. And uh, in this sequence, uh, the bottom of the sequence is very rich. Uh, there is a lot of uh, artifacts, uh, a lot of uh, remains of fauna, and also a lot of traces of uh, fire activity. And, and this was a great luck because uh, this fire burned flints, and so we could collect a lot of these burned flints, and burned flints are essential to implement a method that we call thermoluminescence to date sites. And so with these burn flints, we were able to provide a much more accurate dating of the sign than ever before. Well, of course, when a paleoanthropologist starts digging somewhere, he hopes not to find only uh, burn flints. So we are very lucky to find also uh, new hominins in the site. In fact, uh, in a couple of years, we, we tripled the number of fossils coming from Jebel Irud. Uh, we found many uh, postcranial remains, but also we found um, a, a partial uh, skull, uh, a fragmentary face, but rather complete. Also, an adult mandible that's fairly well preserved. I must say, it's for, for this. Part of the uh, late Middle Pleistocene is probably the best preserved adult mandible that we have in Africa. This mandible is not like my mandible, it's not like your mandible. It does not have a very uh, prominent uh, chin, for example, but it has many features in its proportion and also in the dental features which are shared, shared evolved uh, conditions with, with us. And this is what of one of the arguments that led us to assign these uh, fossils from Jebel Irud, not to the Neanderthals, as it was believed for a long time, but uh, to early, uh, an early form of uh, Homo sapiens. Regarding the age of the site, with uh, the, this method of thermoluminescence and using another method called ESR, we're able to provide a series of dates very consistent uh, assigning these deposits where we have hominins to a period of time around 300,000 years ago, which made these fossils from Jebel Irud, the oldest uh, Homo sapiens that we know today uh, in Africa. They are much older than these East African forms that I showed you. And, and they, are not, they are not in the Garden of Eden. They are very far from the Garden of Eden, unless you consider all Africa is the Garden of Eden. From a morphological point of view, one of the most striking aspects of the fossils of Jebel Irud is the face. And this face is very similar to our face. What you have here on the left is a chart showing you points 
which are located on this two-dimensional space in relation to their morphological proximity. It's, it's something we call geometric morphometrics. So the distance between points express the difference in shape. And what you see here is a big blue polygon representing the variation of present-day humans. The, the pink stars that you see are either fossils from Jebeliroud or different possibilities of reconstructions of this fragmentary phase that I showed you, uh, Iroud um, 10. And you see that they all fit into this polygon. So it means you could meet in the street the face of Jebeliroud today. Okay? Uh, in the meantime, you see also that what you have here Neanderthals, and also middle places in hominins that were long considered to be ancestral to Homo sapiens are very different. So uh, about face, what's interesting is that Homo sapiens retained a number of primitive features that we have in erectus, and these forms, they are very derived compared to this primitive form. This being said, Irud and us do not have just an erectus face. It's, there are also some Slight difference, we'll discuss that maybe tomorrow in, the, in our workshop. Regarding the, the brain and the brain case, it's a completely different story because um, the brain case of, of the Jebeliroud hominins is a rather long and, and, and broad brain case. And so these, these, uh, these individuals did not have the sort of rounded globular brain that you find in uh, extant humans. Again, on the geometric morphometric uh, analysis, you have extant humans in blue, very different from Neanderthals in, in red. Uh, erectus are at the bottom in green. They show the primitive condition. And again, you see that Neanderthals evolve in a very different direction than, um, than, than uh, Homo sapiens. And our, our fossil hominins from Africa, those from Iroud and the other ones from East Africa that I mentioned, are here along an arrow that's evolving gradually toward the, the modern condition. Again, middle places in forms that were considered to be ancestral to uh, sapiens possible, they group with Neanderthals in very different, very, uh, we'd say, derived uh, situations situation. So we can zoom in a little bit into this evolution of the brain in the last uh, three, four hundred thousand years. And um, what you have here is a, is a more detailed analysis of different groups of Homo sapiens of different ages. They are represented by blue polygons with uh, numbers uh, in relation to their age. Along the, origin, uh, the horizontal axis, what is represented is mostly size. And so what you see is the brain uh, size increase between erectus, Neanderthals, and sapiens. But also was, what this uh, chart shows is that when Homo sapiens reach a brain size, which is about the brain size of a present-day humans, uh, 1400 cc, something like that, Morphologically, it started diverging in a completely different direction, uh, almost perpendicular to this trend. And along this axis, what you have is this increase of globularity of the brain. So you have the, the parietal area becoming more salient. And importantly, the cerebellum, this part of the uh, endocranium that is at the bottom of the brain in the back, that becomes bigger and bigger. This is one of the main features evolving in our species. Cerebellum has been long considered to be mostly involved in, in motor coordination, but we know now that cerebellum is involved in much more complex tasks. It's connected to many parts of the neocortex. It's involved in the reward circuits of the brain. It's involved in, in language. It's involved in uh, social interaction. And this is one of the features that we see developing in our species. So this, all these discoveries raise a number of questions. Uh, and the main one is the, the origin of our species, because 
what paleogenetics tells us is that the split point between the lineage leading to Neanderthals and leading to Homo sapiens is somewhere around 650,000 years ago. So there is quite a stretch of time between 300,000 and 650,000. And uh, we don't have, I uh, would say, much evidence for this time period. For a long time, this middle place in hominins that we call uh, Homo heidelbergensis was considered to be a possible common ancestor of Neanderthals and uh, Homo sapiens. And today, and because what I just showed you, the fact that it's derived already on the side of Neanderthals, we see it more like a, a common ancestor of the Denisovans and the, and the Neanderthals. So it might be, I would say, essentially an Eurasian group. But the problem is that we also have it in Africa. And this is kind of puzzling. We have at, at least two fossils that we can assign to this uh, group in Africa, and we have indication that uh, it could have survived much later than we used to think. So that's, you know, again, it's something we have to consider. Uh, an African continent with different groups, the ancestors of Homo sapiens that we still have to identify, this sort of Neanderthal-like uh, creatures that may have survived for a while, Homo naledi, uh, so in other words, a much more diverse uh, situation that we imagine in a continent with some kind of mechanism of isolation for all these groups. The Jebel Irud uh, specimen, they are associated to um, what we call a Middle Stone Age uh, assemblage, a lot of uh, flakes and points, um, not any more indexes. And it's one of the earliest forms of this Middle Stone Age. We actually find soon after 300,000 uh, in South Africa and in East Africa, we find early forms of Middle Stone Age. And it's very tempting to relate uh, the expansion of our species at the scale of the continent with the development of this new kind of uh, technologies. Um, uh, of course, uh, we would like to have more fossils, uh, but we don't have that many. If we look at the, the fossil record in Africa after 300, we have mostly two fossils that could be something like the Irwood specimens, but they are very poorly dated. And what's really interesting with the, the Middle Stone Age is that is among these Middle Stone Age assemblages that we see gradually emerging more and more uh, complexity, cultural complexity with the development of uh, bone industries, a lot of points, also the development of non-utilitarian uh, objects like these beads that has been found in different parts of, of Africa, and also a lot of diversification on the continent. This development did not occur just in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, just in one site in Morocco, uh, we have more than 300 of these beads, which are around 100,000 years old. So the new picture emerging about the origin of our species in Africa is first of all a, a much more, much older uh, coalescence point for all the lineages belong to our species, probably beyond 300,000, um, possibly a, a structured uh, of, of this population uh, in Africa for a long time. This is something difficult to test uh, based on the fossil evidence because we don't have much fossils. And it's quite possible also that the, these different branches that would have existed in different parts of Africa uh, could have been reshuffled by environmental uh, changes. As a matter of fact, Africa witnessed a lot of climatic changes during this time period. And in particular, we had occasionally the, um, the monsoon of coming from the Gulf of Guinea going much further north than today. And so we have a series of what we call Green Sara episodes, by the way, one of them occurring just before the time of Jebel Irud, and a large region uh, today covered by desert, and it's very large, was, was peopled by, by hunter-gatherers. 
living in a savanna with uh, rivers, with lakes, some of them as big as Germany. Uh, and so we have to keep this in mind uh, when we speak about the evolution of our species in Africa. In other words, looking at the location of present-day populations, for example, to reconstruct the past might be very misleading because it's likely that the descendants of all these people who left all these points all over the Sahara maybe today in West Africa or in East Africa. So uh, we think that these episodes might be episodes during which advantageous mutations or innovation would have passed from one group to another. And this may explain why at the end of the Middle Stone Age we have this kind of beads that I showed you, uh, which are made from a very special type of shells can be found from South Africa to Morocco and from Morocco to the Levant. I thank you very much and I want to express my acknowledgements to all my colleagues who participated in the project and uh, to the Max Planck Society for its uh, very generous funding and the INSAP in Morocco for letting us work in Jebel Wood and supporting us. Thank you. Good afternoon. I think I have the longest title talk of today, um, so that's something. Um, thank you very much to the organizers for inviting me to come and speak. Um, hope you feel better soon, Sarah. Um, so we've heard um, throughout the afternoon that modern humans overlapped in time and space with multiple hominin lineages. And one topic that has been of enduring interest is, was there any admixture that happened between modern humans and these other groups of humans? And for a long time, the answer was, well, maybe yes and maybe no, and people debated it pretty um, vociferously. Um, and that was largely because the data to answer that question didn't exist. And it wasn't until more recently that Svante Pabo's group at Leipzig, at, in Leipzig um, developed and pioneered tools for studying ancient DNA. And they produced the first Neanderthal uh, genome sequence. And we finally had the tools to be able to say definitively whether admixture occurred or not. And indeed, as um, Sriram talked about earlier, um, all non-Africans derive about 2% of their ancestry from Neanderthals. And what was even more interesting is a few years later, this same group um, published another paper where they sequenced ancient DNA isolated from a small uh, fragment of a pinky bone, thinking that it was perhaps Neanderthal or maybe um, modern human. And it turned out to be this entire new branch of humanity that we now call the Denisovans. And this is, in fact, the first spe species to be um, entirely described by DNA. And so ancient DNA has transformed our understanding of human history over the past decade. And we've learned many things, like what uh, the distribution of Neanderthal ancestry is uh, in populations across the world. And again, we saw this um, this morning, but we can see that um, on average, individuals outside of Africa can trace about 2% of their genomes back to Neanderthal ancestors. And strikingly, um, we find a very different picture for Denisovan ancestry. So here, we really only find Denisovan ancestry in parts of the world down here. Oops, my, that's not working, so I'll just talk. Um, uh, in populations of Melanesian and Australian Aboriginal origin. So we have a very different geographic pattern of surviving um, ancestry. And that's great. We can describe global ancestry proportions, um, but studying ancient DNA is still hard. So my interest in this area um, can be traced back to a few years ago where we had this idea that, well, if modern individuals... Uh, interbred with uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans, then maybe we don't have to excavate ancient DNA directly from fossils, but we could indirectly isolate Neanderthal and Denisovan sequences from the genomes of modern humans. And so we call this molecular ex excavations. And I borrowed this slide from a CARTA um, <laughs> meeting a few years ago, uh, which I think is a really beautiful uh, representation of this idea of molecular excavations. And so literally what we're trying to do is develop um, computational or statistical models and walk along somebody's genome and pull out the bits that were inherited from Neanderthals or Denisovans. 
And molecular excavations are really powerful because they enable us to identify the specific DNA sequences that were inherited from Neanderthal or Denisovan ancestors. So it's one thing to say something about a proportion, but when you can actually identify the sequences, you can do a lot of interesting things with it. So you can test evolutionary hypotheses, and you can even start thinking about, well, what's the influence of Neanderthal and Denisovan sequences on traits and diseases in present-day populations? And I'll try to touch on um, all of this uh, in my talk. So we've discovered methods to identify Neanderthal and Denisovan sequences, and we've applied them to geographically diverse populations. Um, we've largely looked at around 2,500 genomes that are part of a publicly available project called the Thousand Genomes Project. But we've also worked with colleagues in some cases to um, sample populations from particular regions of the world. Uh, for instance, uh, Melanesia, where we expect Denisovan ancestry to be the highest. And so how much of the Neanderthal and Denisovan genome persists in modern individuals? So if we just represent the Neanderthal genome as this circle, when we look across all 2,500 people, we actually recover about 41% of the Neanderthal genome. And that's pretty striking, right? That we're not actually sequencing a Neanderthal, but we're stringing together these bits and pieces that survive in modern individuals. And by doing that, we can find almost half of the Neanderthal genome. And that might seem surprising, especially in light that each of us only carries a little bit of Neanderthal ancestry, but the reason this works is that the 2% of Neanderthal sequence that I have might be a little bit different than the 2% that you have. And when we look collectively across large numbers of individuals, we can recover a substantial amount of the Neanderthal genome. And on an individual basis, uh, non-African individuals have about 55 million base pairs of Neanderthal sequence uh, per individual. And this is pretty similar across populations, so East Asians, South Asians, Europeans, and American individuals. Um, there's a little variation, but it's fairly consistent. And incidentally, um, if you get your 23andMe report and they tell you you either have the most Neanderthal ancestry or the least Neanderthal ancestry, what it's really saying is that if you have the least amount, you have about 40 meg megabases of sequence, and if you have the most, you have 60 megabases of sequence, and whether that's interesting or not, that's entirely up to you. Um. <laughs> so we can do the same thing for Denisovan sequences. Again, we represent the De Denisovan genome as this circle. And here, we don't do quite as well, so, but we still recover 10% of the genome, which is a substantial amount. And the reason we don't recover quite as much is that Denisovan ancestry is largely confined to Melanesian populations. So, in fact, Melanesians have about 40 megabases of Denisovan sequence per individual, and you find very little Denisovan sequence in other populations. And, in fact, this 10% number is actually pretty good because we only have a sample size of 35 individuals compared to the 2,500 individuals that we're looking for Neanderthal sequence in. So, in fact, there's a lot more of the Denisovan genome to be found. So that's interesting. We can identify intragress sequence. But really what we're interested in is understanding whether admixture was just an interesting side note to human history or was it something more significant? And in particular, did these sequences that we inherited from Neanderthals and Denisovans, did they have um, negative fitness consequences? That means did these, were some of these sequences deleterious? Were some of the sequences advantageous and confer an advantage to our ancestors? And then ultimately, we'd like to know what are the phenotypic consequences of hybridization? And we're going to focus mainly on these two issues today. So this is an overwhelming slide showing the distribution of Neanderthal sequence um, that we can find in modern individuals, in uh, European individuals, in blue, in East Asian individuals, and in red. In each place we find Neanderthal sequence in one of these populations, we put a, a tick mark on the chromosome. The gray regions are just parts of the genome that are too structurally complex to analyze, so we just ignore them. And the black uh, circles are centromeres. And one thing that you might um, be able to see if you stare at this long enough, and we stare at it for a long time, is that there's a, a non-uniform distribution 
of surviving Neanderthal lineages. For example, this region, also highlighted by Sriram this morning, is about a 10 megabase region on chromosome 7 that's significantly depleted of Neanderthal sequence. It's also significantly depleted of Denisovan sequence. And what this suggests is that there once probably was Neanderthal and Denisovan sequence in this region, but it was deleterious in modern humans and eliminated by natural selection. And as Sriram pointed out, right in the middle of this region is the gene FOXP2 that's been implicated for speech in, in speech and language. So if we're interested in the genetic substrates of uniquely modern human phenotypes, these deserts of archaic sequence, I think, are a really good starting point. But not all sequences that we inherited from Neanderthals or Denisovans were deleterious. Some, in fact, were advantageous. And we know that there's somewhere on the order of 50 to 100 uh, places in the genome where there's examples of adaptive introgression. That is, Neanderthal and Denisovan sequences were beneficial and rose to high frequency in the population. And we can find um, examples of this uh, in all of the populations that we look at. And this is pretty fascinating because as modern humans are dispersing into these new environments, they're admixing and picking up beneficial copies of genes uh, from a species or group of populations that have been there for hundreds of thousands of years before them. And so this is a pretty efficient way to adapt to new environmental conditions. And you can sort of generally say that um, the phenotypes that were likely influenced by adaptive introgression tend to fall into a couple categories. So things that influence our um, ability to adapt to new environments, like high altitude, uh, for example. vast majority of adaptive introgression genes are involved in pathogen defense, and we know that pathogens are one of the strongest selective pressures in humans. And then there's a set of genes that we don't really fully understand that are involved in skin and hair biology, and they, too, um, show a very strong signature of adaptive introgression. So... Um, We'd like to continue to understand how uh, hybridizing or mating with Neanderthals and, Neander with Neanderthals and Denisovans uh, influence the trajectory of, of human evolution. But in the last few minutes that I have, I want to tell you about some work that we published um, just a few weeks ago, actually, in which we developed a new method that reveals a new twist in our understanding of human history in mixing with Neanderthals. And one thing that you might have noticed earlier in my talk is that when I talked about patterns of Neanderthal ancestry, um, I exclusively focused on non-African populations. So I showed you how much Neanderthal sequence there, were, there was in East Asians, South Asians, Europeans, and American populations, but didn't say anything about individuals of African ancestry. And that's because all of the methods up until this point have assumed that Neanderthal ancestry in Africa was either very little or non-existent. And so we recently developed a new method that didn't make this assumption. And so we were excited to apply it to individuals of African ancestry. And to our surprise, we actually found substantial amounts of Neanderthal sequence in African individuals. And these were the five populations that were available for analysis from the 1,000 Genomes population, or project. Um, purple here represents African admixed individuals, so largely African Americans. But even in um, these African populations from the 1,000 Genomes Project, we find about 17 megabases of Neanderthal sequence per individual. And just as a comparison, when we look at sort of the same individuals and call Neanderthal sequence using previous methods that we developed that make this assumption that there's little Neanderthal ancestry in Africa, we only call maybe 500 kilobases, so um, like two orders of magnitude less. So this was a really strong signal, and it was very surprising. So we do see Neanderthal ancestry using this new method, but what explains this signal? Well, to make a long story short, there's really two primary explanations. So the first is that there were migrations back to Africa. So people left Africa in the, the major out-of-Africa dispersal, hybridized or admixed with Neanderthals, and some returned back to Africa, carrying the Neanderthal sequence with them. And our results show that the amount of back migration has probably been much larger than we've previously thought. So that's one part of the signal. 
The second part, actually, um, is really fascinating and it's something that we really wasn't on our radar until um, we, we got this result. And that is that part of the signal of Neanderthal ancestry in Africa is due to an early out-of-Africa dispersal and gene flow from humans into Neanderthals. And so let me unpack that a little bit for you. So this is a simple phylogeny showing the relationship between Neanderthals and three modern human populations, so Africans, Europeans, and East Asians. And so the bottom here represents the present, and we go um, into the past as we go towards the top. And this hatch mark just is to indicate that uh, the times aren't going to be drawn proportionally. So we know that Neanderthals and modern humans split around 600,000 years ago. And what our data shows is that not only was there this out-of-Africa dispersal that happened 80,000 years ago that resulted in the peopling of the world, but there was also a much earlier uh, dispersal of humans out of Africa around 200,000 years ago, and they encountered Neanderthals and admixed with them. So in fact, some of the sequence that we call as Neanderthal, it's not Neanderthal sequence in modern humans, it's that Neanderthals have modern human sequence. And so this adds a further twist to sort of this complex pattern of admixture and gene flow and arrows pointing in every direction. So in conclusion, there is substantial amounts of the Neanderthal and Denisovan genome that remain in modern, in modern individuals. There were fitness consequences to hybridization, both good and bad. Humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans have mixed multiple times, likely in multiple places, and that there were multiple dispersals both in and out of Africa. And I think this last point is something that is really important in genetics, is that we often have simple models of how humans dispersed around the world, um, and that the more data we look at, the more complex these models become, and that it's important to take into account the dispersals both out of Africa and back into Africa to really understand patterns of Neanderthal ancestry. So I would like to uh, acknowledge uh, my lab, in particular um, uh, Ben Verneau, who did a lot of the early work on finding Neanderthal sequence, um, my collaborators, and my two boys who I'm sure are not watching right now. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> I can tell you about using ancient DNA to try and understand evolution and natural selection actually among humans today. So we've heard a lot about using ancient DNA to understand archaic humans, understand the relationship between different archaic populations and the interactions between archaic and modern human populations. But most of the work in ancient DNA is actually focused on more recent populations, particularly populations movements in the last 10 to 15,000 years. And that's partly because of uh, sample availability and, and, and preservation of DNA, but it's partly because that's a time period when there are a large number of population movements, if you will, migrations. And I'm just showing you here some of the recent population movements that have been investigated in depth uh, using ancient DNA. Now, what I'm interested in is trying to understand not just how, these pop how and when these population movements happened, but as people moved into new environments how they adapted, and in particular how they adapted genetically to different environments. Now you see there are a lot of arrows here in Europe, and there's been a lot of focus on, on Europe, and I'm going to focus largely on uh, Europe and Western Eurasia. That's not because it's necessarily the most important place or the most interesting place in the world, but it's because it's really the only place as of today that we have the large samples that we need to study uh, the kind of questions we're going to look at. So what does the genetic structure of Europe look like today? Well, this is a rather famous figure that shows you what genetic variation looks like in Europe. So here in the larger plot is a principal component analysis of genetic data. You can think of this as a genetic map. People are close together on the map if they are more genetically similar and further away if they're genetically more distant. Now, each individual here is colored according to their uh, country of origin, and if you look at the inset map, you'll see the geographic structure. And basically, the point here is if you look at the genetic map and, and turn your head and squint a little bit, it looks like the geographic map. Okay, so <laughs> the genetic structure of Europe recapitulates the geographic structure. OK, 
case. So by looking at genetic data, we can learn about geographic structure. And so if I gave you uh, an individual's genome, you would be able to tell with some accuracy which part of Europe they were from, or at least which part of Europe their recent ancestors were from. So this is what ancestry testing companies do in order to tell you what your ancestry is. Um, now, the, the idea is that by looking at this kind of genetic map, we can learn not only about uh, geographic structure, but also about historical structure. And this is an idea that really goes back to the work of Cavalli-Sforza in the 60s and, and perhaps even earlier than that. But there's a problem with trying to learn about historical demography from this kind of data, and that's that present-day data really gives us a very small window into the past. So if I show you the same kind of plot, including ancient Europeans, you get a very different picture. So now present-day Europeans in this plot are in grey, and ancient Europeans dating back 45,000 years, so this is essentially the entire time that anatomically modern humans have been in Europe. And the first thing you notice are that the ancient Europeans are well outside the range of present-day genetic variation. And it's not until the Bronze Age and even really the late Bronze Age that you see ancient Europeans who look genetically similar to present-day people. So you can immediately see it's going to be very difficult to make inference about these past populations if we're just trying to sort of look through the tiny window that we get from present-day data. Now, the other thing we get from ancient DNA that's very powerful is a very clear sense of time. So here I'm showing you a time series of ancient Europeans over the last 15,000 years. So x-axis is time, each column is an ancient individual, and they're colored according to how much ancestry they have from each of three inferred source populations. And you can immediately see, just visually looking at this plot, the genetic impact of events like the introduction of agriculture and the transition from this red hunter-gatherer ancestry to ancestry that's associated with early farming populations in, in blue. You can see those two groups continue to mix over the next few thousand years. And then around 4,500 years ago, we see the appearance of this green ancestry component, which is associated with uh, population movements from the Eurasian steppe. So in some sense, this is why people think of ancient DNA as cheating, because you can see these population movements directly without having to infer them using complicated statistical methods from present-day data. Now, what I'm showing you here is a genome-wide average. Okay, so this is looking at if we, if we average the ancestry of each individual over, over their whole genome, we see these kind of systematic changes. And what we want to know is, are there parts of the genome that don't follow this pattern? Because if there are parts of the genome which either change more rapidly or in some cases less rapidly, those are the parts of the genome which we think are likely to have been targeted by natural selection. So their evolution has been driven by selection rather than, in this case, drift and admixture. So if we do that, we get a map like this. So what I'm showing you here is a scan for selection across the genome using ancient DNA. So on the x-axis is chromosomal position. Each point is a, is a particular genetic marker. Um, and the y-axis is showing you the evidence that that marker is not following this genome-wide average pattern that I showed on the previous slide. So this is called a Manhattan plot, and when you see a skyscraper with a lot of uh, variants lined up, that means that that part of the genome has a large number of markers which are not behaving neutrally and are likely to have been targeted by selection. Now, often when you do this kind of scan, all of these hits, all of these signals are in obscure regions of the genome, and you can't figure out what they do, and it's very hard to interpret. But fortunately, when we did this analysis, it turned out that almost all of these lay in genes that were well annotated, and which we can make a pretty good guess of the function. Okay, so that gives us some confidence that these are real signals of selection. So I'm showing you here the gene names. If we ask, what do these genes do, it turns out that they fall into three main categories. So there are genes associated with diet, genes associated with pigmentation, particularly skin pigmentation, and genes associated with the immune system. So this kind of makes sense. This is the time which agriculture is introduced, people's diets change dramatically, uh, that people are moving from lower latitudes into northern Europe. We think uh, selection for lighter skin pigmentation is related to vitamin D availability. And, of course, people are moving into new environments, but also uh, into denser populations and living in close proximity to domesticated animals. We expect them to experience new pathogen challenges and so see selection on the immune system. So, again, this set of genes is, in some sense, what we expect and gives us some confidence that we are uh, finding real signals. 
Now, as I mentioned, one of the things we can do with ancient DNA that's very powerful is to get a very clear sense of the timing of selection on some of these. So if we look at the lactase persistence locus, which is the strongest signal of selection in the entire human genome, we can see exactly when it starts to become common. So many of you are familiar with this. Most adults in the world today do not have the ability to digest lactose as adults. There are a number of mutations in different parts of the world which allow this ability to persist into adulthood. And what I'm showing you here is the allele frequency of the mutation which today is relatively common in Europe, in different parts of Europe. And what you can see is that 5,000 years ago, no one or almost no one in Europe had this mutation. So no one had lactase persistence. That's interesting because that's many thousands of years after the domestication of cattle, goats, and actually after archaeological evidence of dairying and use of milk products. You see that in Britain and Ireland and in uh, Central Europe, also in Scandinavia, not shown here, uh, it's, the mutation starts to be common three to 4,000 years ago, increases rapidly in frequency before actually leveling off maybe around 1,000 years ago. On the other hand, in other parts of West Eurasia where this mutation is common, in Iberia and in the Indus Valley, it's not selected until much later, perhaps one to 2,000 years ago. It increases rapidly in frequency and doesn't apparently seem to have leveled off. This data stops uh, maybe uh, a few hundred years ago. Now, the idea is by looking at these kind of very detailed uh, temporal data and correlating with archaeological and cultural data, we can start to try and understand why this particular mutation would be so strongly selected. As I said, it's the strongest signal of natural selection in the entire human genome, we still don't really understand the exact mechanism of selection pressure. Other interesting, other interesting loci are also related to diet. So one of my favorite genes is FADS1. The, 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 there are a number of genes at the FADS locus associated with fatty acid metabolism. Uh, and we think that the derived allele here is an adaptation to a diet rich in plant fats as opposed to animal fats. And you can see here that uh, Mesolithic hunter-gatherers do not carry this allele. It appears in Europe in, with early farmers. And then it's rapidly selected, actually, in the Bronze Age, we think likely related to the advent of intensive cereal agriculture. One of the interesting things about this allele is that today in medical genetic studies, this is one of the strongest associations in the genome with uh, LDL cholesterol and triglycerides. So this is an example where our evolutionary history, in fact, our recent evolutionary history, has a big effect on our health today. Now, some of the things that are actually very interesting are not the things that are under selection, but the things that are not under selection. And one example of that is salivary amylase. So the salivary amylase gene allows you to start breaking down starch in saliva. Uh, it seems like the sort of thing that would be an ad adaptation to a, an agricultural diet based around starchy products. Today, most humans have many copies of this gene. In the top row here, you can see the distribution of copies in present-day Europeans. You see most people have on the order of 6 to 12 copies. Now, looking at the ancient populations going down the list, you see that actually most of the ancient populations we look at have copy numbers which are not significantly different from present-day Europeans. In particular, Mesolithic hunter-gatherers do not have uh, less copy number than present-day Europeans. So it seems like in this case, what seems like it should be an adaptation to agriculture actually predates the introduction of agriculture per se. Um, finally, all of the variants I've talked about so far have been uh, relatively recent mutations, but actually some of these mutations turn out to be very old. And in particular, some of the mutations associated with the immune system turn out to have introgressed from uh, archaic humans. So here I'm showing you uh, two uh, figures from two papers which demonstrate that the selected alleles at two of these immune loci are actually clustering with the Neanderthal loci and in fact appear to be uh, introgressed. What's interesting here is that we're talking about selection in the past 10,000 years. Neanderthal introgression happened 50,000 years ago. So these are not variants that were immediately adaptive. They're variants that have contributed to immune diversity and become selected much later. So ancient DNA allows us to identify individual variants under very strong selection. And one of the interesting things we discover is that actually genetic adaptation to agriculture doesn't seem to coincide very closely with uh, the agricultural with the, with the introduction of agriculture itself. Now, all the, very, all the things I've talked about so far have been relatively simple traits. If you have the lactase persistence mutation, you have lactase persistence. If not, you don't. 
But actually, most human traits, certainly most morphological traits and uh, most disease traits, are not like that. Okay. So the canonical example here is height. So I'm showing you here another uh, Manhattan plot. This time, I'm not looking for evidence of selection. I'm looking for evidence of association with height. And it turns out that there are many thousands, in fact, probably tens of thousands of genetic variants across the genome that are all significantly associated with height. So they all contribute to variation in height. Almost every complex trait that's been studied in any detail has this kind of architecture. Of course, the effects of each of these variants are tiny, so the, the average effect size is on the order of plus or minus one millimeter. But if we sum up the effect of all of these variants, we can actually start to build relatively uh, accurate predictions of height. For example, we can explain on the order of 20% of the phenotypic variants. Now, the other reason we like studying height is because it's one of the few phenotypes we can actually measure in skeletons. Okay. So if we do that, we see very interesting changes throughout Europe. So this is data collected by our collaborator, Chris Ruff. So the first thing you notice is that actually in the early Upper Paleolithic, these early humans in Europe are relatively tall, actually almost within the range of present-day variation. There's a dramatic decrease in height over the LGM, uh, which lasts really until the Neolithic, before an increase again going into the Bronze Age. These data end about 1,000 years ago. Of course, in the 20th century, there's a dramatic increase in height, um, but we think that's largely not uh, genetic in origin. So if we take our ancient samples and what we know about the genetic basis of height today and we try and predict, make genetic predictions of height of these ancient samples, it turns out we can largely recover this pattern. So what I'm showing here is genetic predictions of height based on something like uh, 1,200 ancient Europeans. And you can see that we do predict that uh, early Upper Paleolithic populations are taller, there's a decrease continuous into the Neolithic, and then an increase going into the Bronze Age. If I show you the stature data on the same model, you can say, see at least they're qualitatively consistent. For technical reasons, we don't necessarily expect them to be exactly the same. Another interesting observation is that if we do this analysis for standing height, for, sorry, for sitting height, it turns out we see very little change. Okay, so sitting height in the skeletons doesn't change. Uh, to genetic prediction, it's a very, it, we predict a significant change, but it's actually very, uh, very small in magnitude. So what this is telling us is that the known observation that this change in height is driven by change in limb length actually has a genetic basis. We think this is likely an adaptation to climate following Allen's rule, reduced limb length reduces heat loss in colder environments. So ancient DNA allows us to track not only the evolution of simple traits, but actually uh, of polygenic complex traits as well. And potentially, we, we can use this ability to actually predict the evolution of traits which we can't measure directly from skeletons. Okay. Now, in some sense, we can use this information to tell when phenotypes are changing because of evolution rather than plastic developmental responses and to separate out those two effects. I'll end with a caveat, though, which is that it feels like many of these changes should be adaptive, but actually, it turns out to be very difficult to provide genetic evidence for that. Okay. And I think, particularly in, even in the case of height, which is probably the best studied example, we don't have solid evidence whether this is actually driven by natural selection or whether this is genetic drift. And I think that's one of the big questions that we're trying to challenge over the next few years. So I'd like to thank uh, my lab at Penn, collaborators elsewhere, our funding sources, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.